they were furious. I mean, we had legal action coming out of our ears all the time. But what could they do? We're not saying we like it. We're just saying it's half the price. Hey there, James here, and you're listening to the Own the Moment podcast, the show where we explore the complex and always evolving landscape of marketing, advertising, and branding, and try to get to the bottom of what it means to be a truly memorable brand. The On The Moment podcast is brought to you by Como Technologies, a self-service, complete customer engagement platform that helps you cut through the noise to truly connect with your customers and retain and grow those connections over time. With Como, you can build and deploy new campaigns, activations, promotions, and programs in days, not months. And our software is used by some of the world's biggest consumer brands from Heineken to Budget, Goodman Fielder, Foxtel, JLL, Williams Racing, and McDonald's. Learn more at como.tech. Today's guest is Jamie Pete, the global head of retail strategy and effectiveness at McCann Manchester. When Jamie and his team first won the Aldi account in the UK almost 20 years ago, the perception was that Aldi was, in his words, cheap stuff for people with no money. In other words, the perception of the brand was pretty terrible. Jamie told stories of mothers in focus groups saying their kids wouldn't be seen at school with an Aldi brand snack. Starting from a very low base of under 2% market share in the UK, Jamie and his team have successfully built out the Aldi brand over the last two decades to the point where they've now displaced a competitor in the big four supermarkets in the UK by market share. They're loved by a huge base of loyal customers and are consistently winning awards for their memorable advertising work. A truly remarkable feat and a testament to consistent brand and marketing work over a sustained period of time. Jamie and I spent over an hour digging into the Aldi story, the strategy and insights that went into their perfect brand positioning, how their most famous campaign, Like Brands But Cheaper, was born, and just how a carrot called Kevin became their lovable and extremely successful brand mascot. This conversation is filled to the brim with interesting stories and more importantly, insightful takeaways for creatives, marketers, advertisers, and brands. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get to the show. Welcome to the show, Jamie Pete. Thank you. Very, very pleased to be here, James. Great. Uh, Jamie, I wanted to have you on today to discuss your work with obviously building up the supermarket giant Aldi's brand and in particular, the power of perfect positioning. And, and I wanted to start with a quote from the great Mark Ritson, which I think really summarizes what Aldi does so well. Uh, Mark says, Aldi's positioning around high quality products at lowest possible prices and with a no nonsense approach has been executed incredibly well. It would be easy to walk into an Aldi store and criticize its drab decor and bland price-based visual merchandising as being poor marketing. But these criticisms mistake the nature of positioning. Aldi's store environment is just as successful as Chanel's in communicating to consumers what the store is all about. So Jamie, we're going to dig into the positioning and all of the wonderful brand and advertising work you've done over the years with Aldi. But tell me, when did you start working with Aldi and what was the Aldi brand like at that time? Sure. So McCann Manchester, where I'm, I actually, so I'm, I'm, I'm based in Manchester, but I have a kind of global role. But the business, we originally, the first business really came into Manchester. And uh, the, we've been working them, I think it's getting, I think it's 18 years, it's getting on for 19 years to start with. And what's interesting is, you know, the old adage of, you know, from, from small acorns, great oaks grow 
is absolutely true of Aldi. So they, they came to the UK in the late 80s. Initially, uh, the first store was opened in a place called Sketchford in, in Birmingham. And uh, they were a pretty small operation when they came over. And for the first few years, it's fair to say they weren't that successful. They were seen as a bit of a novelty in, in the UK. We'd had, I suppose, what, what you would call limited range discounters in the UK before, but they tended to sell branded products. So the most famous one being Quicksave, who, who are no longer with us anymore, but they were a very successful uh, company for a long time, had a great line, which was top brands at rock bottom prices. Guy who set them up literally bought old sort of, you know, old cinemas and stuff. But the thing was, the stores were, you know, fairly basic, uh, basic shelving, limited range, but they were the brands that you knew. So you went in and it was Kellogg's Corn Flakes, it was Coca-Cola, uh, it was Heinz, et cetera, et cetera. So I suppose the shtick was, all right, you know, you're not, you're not paying for the store, you're not paying for the thing, but you're getting the brands that you like. Aldi was somewhat different because it came to the UK with predominantly their own Aldi brands, which were pretty much unknown. And also, they opened in the UK with a fairly limited range, and they opened in what would be probably, you know, if, uh, if we were trying to be really kind, cheaper property areas of towns. So in areas where property prices were uh, were lower. Well, so what you really get is, you know, if you're not careful, you get the idea that it's basically a, a store with cheap products for people with no money. <laughs> and this was their this was their issue, really, when they came to UK. But it's worth just thinking about where they came from. So Aldi stands for Albrecht Discount. The Albrecht family started the business, I think it was in, in Essen in Germany. It's certainly after the First World War. Uh, and it was a time, obviously, of austerity in Germany. And they, they really came in to answer this thing. And they basically had limited range. And the ethos was, you, we, we only stock things that sell. If they don't sell, you know, they don't, they don't list them anymore, and et cetera. Very, very much about a, a pared down, keep all of operational costs low. But it was really the two brothers, so the sons of uh, the Albrecht family, Theo and Karl, who grew the business. And certainly after the Second World War, again, Germany was hugely in a, in a time of austerity, they really pioneered that business, and it really it grew and grew and grew and grew in Germany to be the number one retailer. Carl and Theo fell out in the 60s. The sort of mythology is that it was over selling cigarettes in the stores, but I think also they just didn't like each other. <laughs> and they literally split the business in two. So they, they literally drew a line across the middle of Germany and said, you can have the North, Theo, and I, Carl, will have the South. And to this day, Aldi is actually two companies, Aldi Sud and Aldi Nord. So uh, the UK and Australia would be uh, Aldi Sud. Obviously, Germany have both. France, Spain, uh, they're all Aldi Nord. Uh, and then a bit weird in America, you've got Aldi Sud and you've got Trader Joe's in America, which is actually owned by Aldi Nord. They were, they were like competitors, really. And what that meant was that in Germany, for many, many years, they didn't advertise on TV because they were separate companies. So the thing that drove the business was what we call the leaflet. So every week there is a, a, a leaflet that produces, that shows what they call the special buys, which is the sort of rotating range of products which tend to sit in the middle of the store. Anybody's familiar with Lidl, Lidl have a very similar, obviously owned by Schwartz, they have a similar uh, sort of business model. So that was the backbone and still is to some way the backbone of their business. So anyway, I digress. So when they first came to us about 18, 19 years ago, 
actually it was to do recruitment advertising. So it was literally to recruit staff for their stores and then and then into their sort of management programs. And we still do uh, recruitment for them. So that was the start of the relationship. But then what really got things going was we had the opportunity and now do run their weekly leaflet. So that is a huge operation. It's produced every single week. It is in uh, distributed through their stores and then it's distributed electronically uh, to a whole range of customers as well. And that was the start of the relationship with with Aldi. And from that, the relationship grew and eventually um, moved into you know, uh, traditional advertising as, as we see now. So it very much was a very uh, a small acorn to start with. And then I think to think then to, to what I was saying about where they came from. So they, they came to the UK, they came with this very different sort of model um, with their own Aldi brands, a very, very limited range of SKUs. Uh, I mean, even today where they've increased their range, a typical Aldi would only have 2,000 SKUs. A Tesco would have 35,000 plus, depends on the size of the store, maybe more. And so it was definitely received with a little bit of curiosity, uh, but what I say is sort of mixed, mixed reception in the UK. I think the fact that they put themselves into, as I say, cheaper property areas didn't really help. And um, it got quite sort of a quite a sort of um, snooty response from both the other supermarkets and also from the media. So we had things like the then MD of Tesco saying things like uh, CEO of Tesco saying, you know, Aldi can live in their bit of the market. We'll live in our bit of market. It's fine. And you had people like the Times saying things like, you know, one searches for kiwi fruit and avocados in vain in Aldi. So I think the issue that they presented themselves with was um, they became very quickly, as I say, this place for this supermarket with cheap products for people with no money. And actually, that then created a pretty negative feeling around the brand. So uh, I, I always think it's summed up by the fact that it, uh, it became a bit of a playground insult at school. So your mum shops at Aldi was pretty bad. And, you know, we, we anecdotally in, in focus groups and so on got things like, you know, kids, mums saying, you know, they, kids will not take Aldi products to school or they will not use an Aldi shopping bag or if I go shopping in Aldi, I'll take a Marks and Spencer's bag or something. So that's pretty bad for, for a brand. And um, we, we'd originally started to sort of tackle this head on. And the initial work that we did for them was, um, I think, trying to take on this idea of quality, really, that, 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 that very much, as you, as you say, and, and to the Ritson quote, Aldi's whole business is built on the idea of selling the best quality product for the, the, the money you pay. So you're not paying for the store. You're not paying for the signs. You're not paying for lots of staff in the store. It's a pretty lean operation. It's run very efficiently. You're not paying for a cafe. You're not paying for all those kind of things. So if you like, a higher proportion of what you spend goes on the product. So what we were finding was people just didn't believe it. You know, it's like the old adage, you get what you pay for, don't you? Right. As my mum would always say to you, well, you get what you pay for. You know, you, you, have, you, can't, you, know, you can't have your cake and eat it. So people couldn't believe that things like olive oil and Parmesan cheese and so forth were so cheap. So the initial work we did with them really was twofold. First of all, 
if I'm really honest, we sort of copied Marks and Spencers. So if you remember the very famous Marks and Spencers ads with Dervla Kerwin, the actress doing the voiceovers, food porn, as they were called at the time, which was, you know, beautiful shots of, you know, chicken, olive oil, wine, pudding, so forth, uh, with this lovely seductive voice. Well, so we did a bit of that, which was quite successful. Uh, and of course, obviously at great price points. And then we also did... It's, it's, it was a time of celebrity chefs. So we had, obviously, you'd had Delia Smith doing all her work with Sainsbury's. Then they signed Jamie Oliver, hugely successful. I always remember we actually approached James Martin, if you know James Martin, Yorkshire chef, quite famous, famous for puddings and desserts. He wanted too much money at the time. So <laughs> uh, we actually ended up with, um, uh, well, what's that? I can't think of his name. He's married to Fern, who used to present, Fern Britton, who used to present Ready Steady Cook. Um, but he he basically was our celebrity chef. Anyway, so business was doing quite well. And then um, what happened was we we went into the financial crash of sort of 2008 and they'd been making some headway and then their rate of growth just started to slow again. And you'd think this is a bit uh, weird because... Um, Surely, at a time of financial growth, you would you would think Aldi was at top of mind, but it wasn't, and this was very concerning. I mean, even then, towards two thousand and ten, they only still after all these years they've been in they've been in the UK since eighty eight or something. They still only had less than two percent of the UK market. I mean, the UK market is a big market; it's worth what mm. probably then one hundred and fifty billion or something. So still, I mean, it's, it's not small. But it's a small player. Lidl were bigger than them. Lidl had about the same number of stores. They were at about 2% still of the market. So you still had the big four, as we call them, Tesco, Sainsbury, Morrison's, Asda, with well, you know, get, getting on for 70% of the market. So this was an issue. And they, they were even really questioning whether the UK was long-term was going to be a viable option for them. So I think in these times, you, you have to do a bit of... Um, sort of digging, don't you? You need to start to think about, well, how do we find something more interesting to talk about with Aldi? And, and fundamentally, how can we find something that would make them famous? And we have a process in McCann called Truth to Meaning. We, we examine all aspects and we sort of dig into it. And we've, Anyway, we found something quite interesting, which went again straight back to the, the, the two brothers. So Carl, who ran um, uh, Aldi Sued, he had this um, this quote, which we found, which basically said, we don't ask how much we can sell a product for. We only ask how little we can charge for it. So we thought, well, that's really interesting, isn't it? It's like, it's not, you know, that's pretty counterintuitive for a retailer. Because right. you normally think, you know, what's the highest thing we can, you know, what can we get away with selling this thing for? Mm. They're saying the opposite. They're saying we, we want to try and sell it for the lowest price that's, that we can. And we like this. And from that, we, we developed this, what we called a meaningful role for them, which was this idea that, you know, access to high quality fresh food should be a right, not a privilege. It should be something for everybody. It should be, you know, something that is democratized to everybody. And we also, from this, we thought, well, this is, we like this idea. This is, this is interesting. Uh, it gives us a kind of point of view. And it's kind of pointy and a bit sort of like, you know, cage rattling. And so from that, we thought, well, also, does that give us permission then if we're on this campaigning thing? One of the things that really struck us was that supermarket advertising 
Supermarket advertising is boring, really. It's quite serious. It's quite. Uh, there are there are some exceptions. You know, you can think of the, the sort of the Dudley Moore stuff that was done with Tesco and so forth. But in general, it's not that entertaining. Bit serious, bit shouty. It's all quite the same, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's yeah, very price range and quality. What else is it to say, really? Right. So we thought, well, maybe what we should do is um, find a way of being a bit more like the pirates. Be the pirates, not the navy if you like, and have a, a tone of voice that was a bit more sort of piratical, for want of a better phrase. And so we had this thought. And then when we looked really into what was happening and why the, 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 the rate of sale was slowing so much, what we found was that, and these things are all very, very, lo- everything's always so logical in retrospect. And in fact, I was at a, a meeting yesterday with ITV in the UK, big independent, and they were presenting some recent research, which was very similar to things that we saw in 2008, which basically said, you know, in times of financial stress, you can't afford to buy the wrong things. So if you're somebody who's got a very limited range of amount of money in your pocket or your purse, you've only got this money to feed the family this week. If you buy stuff and the family don't like it, that's a big problem mm. because I haven't got any more money. I can't. So what do we do? Do we go without for the rest of the week? So right. what was happening was people were saying, well, yeah, Aldi's cheap. But there's all these brands, all these Aldi brands. I've never heard of them. Are they any good? Don't know. I might have tried one or two things. I thought, well, that was all right. My mum told me that she liked the jam. But, it, you know, I don't know. Whereas, you know, if you know where you are with a brand. You know where you are with Heinz. You know where you are with Kellogg's. You know where you are with Coca-Cola. You know where you are with um, Nivea or whatever. Mm. And it made us think about the whole thing in a bit of a different way. Because I think prior to that, we'd really thought, you know, to try and justify ourselves all the time to say, we're as good as, you know, brands. You don't need brands. You can buy the Aldi brands. It's fine. You know, start with where the customer is. Start, put yourself, put yourself in, you know, have empathy. Because what they're saying is actually customers like brands. We, we like brands. So we thought, well, and then we were, we were talking to Aldi and they said, you know, when we develop our brands, we spec them against the leading ones. So if you buy Aldi's Branwell tomato sauce, we spec that product against Heinz. And actually, you know, if we did consumer tests, it might not be 100% the same. It might be 90%, but it's half the price. And we said, well, gosh, that's really interesting as well. What if we got away from this shouty thing? And what if we just said, you like brands, we like brands as well. Actually, we like brands. We like Heinz tomato sauce, and we also like the Aldi one, but the half price, you choose. And actually, 90% of customers, because we've tested it, and legally we have to put this on the ad, say to us um, they like it too. So like brands but cheaper was born from that idea. And in the spirit of this kind of like being the pirates, not the Navy, we started to make these little films where we, we originally shot the original one with the daughter of one of the creatives. And we, we describe, they've been described as all sorts of things. I think of them as uh, or a thousand little plays about Britain because you always know somebody who's got something to say, always got somebody who's, you know, your grandma, <laughs> your auntie, whatever. One of the creatives, Neil, who's Neil and Dave, the creatives, uh, the creative directors who came with them, Neil used to call them like hostage videos because they were literally done. I mean, they were so cheap to make. They were mainly street cast. Mm. We would shoot them and shoot lots of versions and they'd be sort of sort of semi-scripted. So we'd see what we got from it. So we made the first one, which was tomato sauce. 
um, with a little girl who said she didn't like she liked she liked this one she liked this one but she didn't like boys was the original <laughs> one. Then we made one for baked beans against Heinz baked beans, which these two little girls saying like that. But they both make you trump was was the the two things they said. And then we shot one with a lady called Jean from the northeast, who said she her husband liked tea. He liked PG tips. He also liked that Aldi one, but she didn't like tea. She didn't like gin. She liked gin. And I, remember, I can remember it quite vividly. So we made this one. We showed it to Aldi and they're like, oh, I'm really not sure. What were they not sure about? Was it? I think they just thought it was moving away from the products. And I always say we're in the light entertainment business. Our business is to entertain, to make you famous and to be entertaining. That's why you pay attention. You know, all the work of Orlando Ward, all the work of Ian McGilchrist, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, little bits of entertainment. And that's why, you know, because we're intruding into people's lives and, and all the rest of it. So I think they just thought it was a little bit too, what did gin have to do with what they're talking about? Anyway, hmm. we were doing some groups on something else. And in the last 10 minutes, I said, oh, we've got this ad. It's not been on yet. Do you want to have a look at it? Put it on. And of course, everybody in the group laughed and said, oh, that's really funny. And uh, we showed it and the rest is history. Mm. It just took off. I mean, it was literally the third one we made. We made more than 100 wow. like brands. We're still making them now. We've got two going on air fairly fairly soon. I mean, she became a national treasure. Mm. It was voted ITV out of the year by ITV viewers. It was voted out of the decade from, from for 2010 to 20 by um, Marketing Week uh, readers. It won a gold IPA award. It's gone on to win Light Brands Campaign has won a global grand FA, FE Best of the Best. It's won uh, Creative Arrow Awards. It won and won and won across the board. Mm. And then it spurned, it spurred Aldi on to do, you know, we did them for Mayonnaise. We did them for chocolate. We did them for wine. We did them for hot cross buns. We did them for washing powder. So we literally did everything. And I always describe it as marketing jujitsu because we don't sell brands, not really. Some, yeah, I have a few brands sometimes on Spotify. So we threw it back at the other supermarkets. We were using the weight of the brand and the weight of the supermarket against them. Uh, they were furious. I mean, we had legal action coming out of our ears all the time. But what could they do? Because we tested them. So we'd mm. say on, on, on screen, you know, 80% of customers who like uh, PG Tips also say they like the Aldi one. Mm. And then we're not saying we like it. We're just saying it's half the price. Ads were 22nd. Um, it's interesting because it, it brings, you know, the whole, I think it brings the whole performance marketing versus brand marketing, you know, debate. It, it flips that because they were hugely brand building. Mm. But their performance ads, the price of, of a 20-second ad, the price is on screen for 15 seconds. Right. So they are building a brand. You know, it's the, the great quote of the great Jeremy Bullmore. A great ad will sell now and forever. It's doing both jobs for you. Also, what I like about it, you know, in the in this time of purpose, mm. Aldi does have a real purpose. It really tries to get you to get good food for less or to have to have more food, more for your money. That, to me, is proper purpose. It's the truth of, of the brand. Right. And, and in a time where, I mean, every brand is, you know, scrambling to add purpose. And I think, you know, mostly with good intentions, I think there's something very authentic about Audi's purpose 
and just to cl- close the loop on on like brands but cheaper i mean and so you know where is the market share today you know after all of this success over the last decade where you know i i read somewhere maybe it's now in the the big four they are indeed we were bigger than morrison's in volume terms we have been for a while mm. um, but obviously being a discounter we the value share is lower because we, we charge us. We overtook Morrison's towards the end of last year. We thought they might slip ahead of us at Christmas. We can talk a bit about Christmas because Christmas traditionally was a bit of a tricky time. However, we've, we've, we've addressed the true Christmas problem. But in fact, we didn't. And we are securely now ahead of Morrison's. So the share is it's around 10% now. You know, So they've gone from possibly um, less than a £2 billion business to a, a, a north of a £16 billion business in the UK, which is huge. There, there are so many good examples. They During time of COVID, Aldi had a rough time uh, because they were the wrong shape. They they didn't have e-coms. Right. They are fairly small stores that have limited range. So, you, you know, are you going to get everything? Are they going to have everything? You're fairly close to people in an Aldi. They're not big stores. And they're not, they're not convenient, really. They're mm. slightly out of town, usually. So all mm. the things that we wanted during COVID, they didn't have. But what they made the very brave decision in my is to not go, not go dark. They advertised. They kept going. And guess what? Now we're in a time of financial challenge when people are looking to save money. And, you know, saving money on your grocery bill is a big saving for the year. Aldi is the discounter of choice. And we, I mean, I think last year... They added nearly one and a half points of share onto their 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 market share, which is huge. It's a big success story, uh, really. Just to come back to like brands only cheaper. So I, I'm sure you've read Lemon by Orlando Wood and the System One team. I mean, I'm just sort of obsessed with the book at the moment. I think you know, as someone that's, I mean, I'm you know, I'm not in advertising, um, but you know, sort of immersing myself in this world with this podcast. I think. For me, like brands only cheaper, it feels like the almost the textbook example of the right brain advertising, you know, the, from the quirky sense of humor to the regional accents to the real life. Tell me sort of what's your take on Orlando's thesis around left versus right brand advertising and the decline over the last year? I know Orlando quite well. I'm a huge fan of uh, his work and, and also of Ian McGilchrist's work, you know, the neuroscientist that this is based a lot of Orlando's, Orlando's sort of taken his work and put it into a, a cultural context. And he, I don't know if his, his new book, Lookout, is also really, well... Yeah, I must must read that one. It's on my list. But very much building on the same thing. Well, I, so I, I'm, a huge, I'm a huge fan. I uh, absolutely buy into this idea of, basically, the, the left and right sides of the brain, they do the same things, but they do the same things in a different way. They attend to the world in a different way. The right brain is much more about um, a broad bream. It's more about the real world. I love there's a great quote that Orlando talks about. He says it's looking for things that are just off stage. Hmm. So basically, it's it's looking for things that you're not looking for. This is how brands grow. Byron Sharp, you grow by bringing more customers into your thing. You know, the the left hand side of the brain, it's much more narrow. It's much more manipulative. It's about people who are already in the market. So, if you're going to appeal to the right hand side of the brain and that that broad beam attention, exactly what you say, being entertaining, being uh, humorous being based on real people, being in real situations, possibly being slightly nostalgic is, is very good as well. Being um, Having a sense of place and a sense of time, having a sense of a story, all of these things. I think what, what's happened, uh, James, is 
these are all things that great advertisers and creatives knew instinctively. Hmm. They knew, you know, the David Abbotts, the Bill Bonebacks, the um, the John Hegartys, all all these people. They they knew these things, and I think great marketeers did too. When we look back to the great work of the past, all the great work that was done, uh, you know, about the great works of Heineken, Cadbury's, PNG as well, uh, Unilever over the years. I think what happened was with the rise of digital tech and you know we live in a digital world i mean we shouldn't really talk about digital advertising or digital it isn't a separate thing it's the world we live in we live in a digital enabled world that's what we that's where we live it's how we consume things so that's and that's fine of course i think one of the issues is that what happened was the growth of digital marketing really came from direct marketing so it, it enabled and it, it sort of was a renaissance of and a, a, a new enabler to direct marketing and direct marketing very very which is probably the first sort of marketing the first sort of advertising you know go out back to claude hopkins and all the rest of it is based really on the ada model isn't it it's based on that very linear model you know uh, attention interest desire action and it's very linear and it's very selling now the point is that is only one model of advertising nobody in the whole world really knows how advertising works not one person can tell you i don't think whether an ad is going to work or not work and that's why people like system one are very useful because what they do is they help they up the probability we're all in the gambling game really we're all in the game of trying to place bets where we think it's going to work the the seduction of the ada model is it appeals very strongly to clients because it's very logical and it's very selling, isn't it? It, it, it? it focuses on selling you stuff. And, you know, it's very much about benefits and messages. However, that's not really the only way advertising works. And if you think about other things, you know, the idea of entertainment, the idea of showmanship, the idea of seduction in some way, or maybe the idea of advertising is, you know, PR stunts, all this kind of stuff. That's ignored. What digital did was it really enabled that first thing. And we got into this whole world of personalization and, and addressability of everything and also the idea of measurement. So the problem with old advertising was, it's back to the famous quote, you know, 50% of advertising is Wanamaker, isn't it? 50% of advertising is wasted, I just know what 50% it is. Hmm. So suddenly it seems really seductive, doesn't it? To go into this world where I'm addressing people directly and I'm also being able to measure it. The problem is, well, there, there are many problems. First problem is, are you really addressing these people? So there's all the issues around quality of data, about ad fraud, about all this kind of thing, you know. Secondly, it doesn't create reach to people who are not in the market now. So it's very hard to build brands because brands really, you know, I might not be in the market for something and you are. But if you're buying something, if I've got it for it for it to mean something to all of us, I've got to have an opinion on it. You know, I don't own a Bentley, sadly, <laughs> but uh, I've got a pretty good opinion about what Bentley is. I've got a, I've got a thought in my mind about Bentley, what Bentley is, and who Bentley. You know, what I might feel like if I if I owned a Bentley. Brands aren't just about comms; they're about all sorts of things. But um, so that so that is a that that's a problem as well. And then I think it's led to very, very the, the growth of what now is called performance marketing. 
So this stuff that is activational, it's very short term. It's about people who are in the market now. It's response driven, back to the direct marketing. Um, and it is very, um, it's measurable. So, you know, you can quote all these figures. I've done this. I've got this back. Whoever came up with the term performance marketing was a genius because what it's done is depositioned all other types of marketing. Do you want marketing that don't perform then? Is the other part of marketing not performing? This is performance marketing. Mm. And, you know, if you if you then call the other part of marketing brand building, which is it often called, sounds a bit woolly, that, doesn't it? Are we going to stick? Yeah. Where should we stick our... Two million quid. Should we stick it into performance marketing where we're getting this return? Or should we stick it in brand building? Oh, what's that? You know, mm. this is a problem. And then if you if you add on to that the fact that advertising is a craftsman's job, it's not a profession. You don't have to pass exams to be, a, you know, if I was a doctor or a lawyer or a, 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 a you know, or an architect or something, I'd have to pass exams and then have to be recognized by a professional body doesn't really exist in advertising so, so what that means is you've got all sorts of people in there and there's no sort of precedent so we don't build on the knowledge of the past mm. you know if you're a lawyer you learn law don't you, you go right back to the greeks and the romans and you come right through this doesn't happen so i think there's been a generation of marketeers and advertisers who have not grown up with the, you know in the old school of people who instinctively knew this and don't really know it. And then also, you've got on, on top of that, you've got the fact that it seems very seductive to do a lot of this new marketing because it's cheaper, isn't it, to do all this stuff? You don't have to make TV films. And so this has become a real problem. I think we're waking up from it a bit now. I think also the growth of, um, you know, big holding groups, WPP and so forth, has meant there's been pressure on margins. And of course, that, that affects headcounts. So in the old days, because we are a bit of a craft, You'd have people in, you know, you'd have almost like apprentices in your, you know, people would listen and learn. Mm. Now, that's not so easy. So what's happened is I think it's led to this false split of performance versus brand building. Whereas what we should really think about is it's a whole thing. Right. And everything does a bit of both. I mean, and we can talk a bit about this. We can talk, if we talk about Kevin in uh, shortly, we, we can see that you can actually build brands or you can you know think about don't think about it as building brand think about that of securing future sales you're giving yourself a better chance of selling stuff in the future while also attending to sales now and of course that's very important to retail isn't it There's the old adage in retail is you know if you don't if you don't have if you don't build your retail brand you haven't got future sales if you don't have a short-term strategy you haven't got a retail business you've got to sell stuff you know what do retailers do what did i sell on this day last year what's my what's my like for like sales or all this kind of stuff so that is uh, a very important thing and, and just to, to finish up on like brands like brands showed you could do that you could you could sell stuff now you could sell packs of tea for half the price of the leading brand and you could build um a, a, a positive um emotional resonance of your brand strong memory strong positive emotional memory and resonance which ups the chances that people will come to you in the future and more people will come to you in the future. Yeah, um, I want to get on to Kevin in a moment, but just a, a final question on this sort of left versus right brain. So, I mean, obviously performance marketing, I mean, it, it does make sense for a very specific type of business, right? If you're a, 
you know, a, a t-shirt e-commerce shop or whatever. I mean, of course it makes sense to, to not be running TV ads, but to be doing very clever, you know, lookalike audiences on Facebook and all that. Have you seen that more performance side of marketing seep into big consumer brands as well? I mean, do you have clients over the last decade that have equally wanted to explore the performance side? Because that's intriguing to me, um, if that's the case. For sure. Yeah, for sure. But I think what happens is that you get a startup, let's say, t-shirt, clever t-shirts, whatever, and they do all that stuff. And then you reach a limit. Mm. You reach a glass ceiling. And if you are going to go beyond that, you have to start to reach people who are not necessarily in the market. Now, look at look at Airbnb. Look at all of the, compare the market, the aggregators. Look at you know, people like Booking.com or, or whatever, they're all on TV now because they have to get more people to their website. So I think what what's, I mean, obviously, Les, Les and Peter, Les Benet and Peter Field talk about this a lot and they talk about 60-40 or whatever it is, how, however, you, however you, you, you carve it up. And they obviously, they talk about, you know, brands that actually are a bit more sort of performance-led actually should be investing a bit more in brand. They should be actually thinking about widening their thing. What I think it's led us to is, the way the way I think about it now is we talk to clients about full funnel fame. So the funnel, I, there's a great, I, I, I would love to have this quote, but it's not, I didn't, it's from, um, it's the guy who, at uh, Tom, who's at Jellyfish. He talks about the funnel being the cockroach of marketing concepts. In other words, it's been around for ages and it never goes away. You know, it could be a nuclear war. <laughs> like the cockroach, the, the the funnel would still be there because it's, it's the Ada model, of course. But I think what I do like is if you think about it, not so not in such a rigid way, but you think about full funnel fame. So you're always trying to sell and you're always trying to build a brand. The emphasis might change a bit, depending on where you are. You might nudge a bit more that way or a bit that way. That's not a bad way to think about it. And so that's the kind of conversations we have with with our clients. We'll, we'll get on to this because it's very, Kevin is very re- relevant to it, but not just Kevin. Mm. Back to Orlando, uh, I think he quoted, he came up with the idea of a fluent device, or certainly he coined that phrase, something that comes to mind, you know, like being fluent in a language, you just don't think about it, easily comes to mind. Fluent devices, be they characters, be they words, be they scenarios, are great things that you can deploy across the funnel and you can deploy into your, say, more performance end of activity, which will aid and, and up the performance, but it will also build a brand as well. And that's very powerful. Because, and of course, they're very adaptable across touch points and so forth. Yeah, that's clever. So let's move on to Kevin. Kevin the Carrot, maybe give a quick, I mean, for those outside the UK, a quick background, uh, you know, who is Kevin? Where did it come from and, and what's so powerful about it? Yeah, sure. So so we'd had a lot of success with Aldo. We talked about light brands. We then ran a, a sort of parallel campaign with light brands called Swap and Save. Very straightforward. Swap to Aldi from your, your current supermarket and save money. What was interesting was it we, we took quite aspirational families. So they weren't so aspirational that you you thought, but they thought, well, if they're shopping at Aldi, right, it must be okay. And the combo of that and like brands together, that was the dream combo. And I think at one stage we were Aldi was growing by forty percent a year, which is you know it's it's big for a for a big you know consumer brand, yeah, yeah, uh, gro- grocery retailer, yeah. Uh, and all the all the you know all of the complexity that comes with you know making sure there's fruit on the shelves and and all the rest of it. But despite all this success, we still had a big problem at Christmas, 
And the problem, again, this is the other thing. Um, We don't spend enough time these days understanding problems. Most, And this is Ritson. Ritson calls it orientation, call it diagnosis, marketing. Do you really understand what it is you're trying to do? And therefore, where comms can or or can't play a role? Because lots of things comms can't fix. Comms is a weak force, you know. Things like range, pricing, experience, all these things, they're much more important than the product. Is it, you know, is it any good? All this kind of stuff. Yet we we rushed comms tactics to try and solve all sorts of problems. And I think again, it's it's about having a whole generation of marketeers who probably haven't grown up in the old school of sort of brand management where they saw things on you know much more holistically. So the problem is was very straightforward. As we got towards Christmas every year, Aldi lost market share. And uh, you you could see it. You could look. If you looked at weekly Nielsen or Kantar, you'd just see the share drop. As Literally, as you got towards the big day. And when we, do, when we, when we dug into this a lot, uh, it was some fairly, you know, at the end of the day, you could understandable reasons. First, first one being everybody increases their repertoire at Christmas. Right. So people like to shop everywhere. And you tend to shop places you might not shop for the rest of the year. Like you might go and buy your turkey in a butcher that's local that you only go to once a year. And that's part of Christmas. And you stand in the queue and they might give you a free mince pie and a glass of sherry. And you talk to people. Or you might go to a farm shop. Or you might upgrade a bit so you might go to sainsbury's or you might go to marks and spencers and buy their products and actually what we find is perhaps slightly counterintuitively again you know the more financially challenged you are the more important christmas is right so actually people will prioritize christmas they'll save up for it to have a good christmas which is lovely isn't it there's something very it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing thing, yeah to to save money and to try and have a a nice christmas Mm. Despite everything, and of course, who's going to who's going to say who's going to complain when you put Marks and Spencers, ooh, Marks and Spencers, on the table when you have the family round or your neighbours or whatever it might be? So that was an issue, and it, what it meant was that people who were loyal Aldi shoppers were not shopping at Christmas. What made it worse was when we looked into it, Aldi shoppers because they tend to be a slightly lower demographic. They actually like Christmas more than the national average. So you've got a bunch of people who shop at Aldi all year who like spending at Christmas. They just don't like spending it at Aldi. Right. So this is a problem for you. And then you dig into it a bit more, and what you find is these people like Christmas, and they like Christmasiness. So they like carols on loop in the store and hearing Slade. They like the fact that the assistants have hats on. They like the fact there might be a few... Mars celebrations on the till. They like the fact that the store dresses up a bit. Guess what? Aldi don't really do any of those things because they are they are hamstrung by their operational model. The more they put complexity into the business, the, the more they have to charge. So, yeah, they do you know dress the stores a little bit, but it's nothing like you might get in a Tesco mm. somewhere else. So again, this is a problem for us. Uh, so, so you've got a problem there, and then the third problem is Aldi has a very limited range. So, if you're going to put Christmas lines in, which which we do, you have to take things out. It's as simple as that. There isn't room. So, you think about all the things like fresh party food, fresh turkeys, all that stuff that goes in. We've got to take stuff out. So, there is like a military operation 
that Christmas sort of kicks off start of November and then goes right through, obviously, to New Year, if you like, things will come into store. Now, broadly speaking, there are two types, there are, there are two sort of mindsets at Christmas. And I, I'd, I'd be interested to know where you fall into this, James. Are you a planner or are you a gambler? So planners will tend to really think through what they buy, when they buy. Right. When they get paid, they might do it across two or three paychecks to make sure they get the best. Gamblers say, stuff that. You know what? I'll go on Christmas Eve and there'll be something I'll buy. It's turkey, great. If it's not turkey, we'll have beef and so what. Mm. For, a, for a planner, that would be like the world's come to an end. You know, There's no sprouts. The world's come to an end. Guess what? Aldi tend to be a bit more plannery. Interesting. Well, because again, they're working on maybe more limited budget. So you have to think through what you're doing. We do a special Christmas brochure. Now. So all of these things then compound because people say, well, as I get near to Christmas and I want to do my Christmas shop, will Aldi have everything? Do they sell those things? Mm. And even if they don't sell them, they might have sold out of them. So this is a big problem. Okay, we've got to do something. So we needed some way of trying to reassure people about all of those things to showcase the products and to to make Aldi seem Christmassy when the stores themselves aren't, aren't that Christmassy. So actually, again, funny where things come from. We were we were in some focus groups listening to people talk, and focus groups have gone, you know, they've gone a bit out of fashion, haven't they? Because you know, people say, well, you know, people don't really talk about what they really do in focus groups. Everything's rationalised. I think, like all things, there's there's a place for everything, and I, I personally. I don't think they're, they're necessarily the best ways to test stuff, but they are good to let the, just let people talk about things. And it may not be what they say necessarily, but you might think, oh, the way they were reacting about that, there's something in that. And I remember one lady said something like, it's funny, isn't it, Christmas, really? Because it's just a day. Like, you know, make all this fuss. And we have a, we have a Christmas dinner. It's just a roast dinner you know, really. But we put, you know, we put silly hats on and, and it becomes a bit special. And if you take that thought and extend it a bit further, it's true, isn't it? You know, you put decorations up in your house, it's still your house, it's no different. Mm. It feels a bit different because you put some sparkly lights on. Think about, you know, your town centre. Maybe there's a Christmas market. Maybe there's, you know, it feels a bit different. So we thought this idea of the ordinary becoming a bit more special or becoming a bit more extraordinary at Christmas, we thought we like this, we like this idea. It's an interesting thought. I always think what I always think, James, as well, when I when we recount all these stories of uh, of past glories, shall we say, <laughs> it all seems so logical. And it's as I'm sure well you know, it's not logical. There's all it's a mess, but somehow something yeah, crystallizes, doesn't it? And you think, oh uh, you know, it, it sounds so sage like, doesn't it? And we did this and we did this, and it's so logical. It's not like that at all. But we did have it, we had this sort of thought. And then I was sat with the two creative directors and Darren, who is uh, my uh, my colleague, who who is the sort of works completely on on Aldi uh, in strategy, and it was the year. So the the first year of Kevin was two thousand sixteen, and I think it was the year that that John Lewis was doing Monty the Penguin. John Lewis, the undisputed king mm. of you know, created the whole genre. Mm. And created this thing in the UK of Christmas being like our, our sort of Super Bowl, if you like, uh, of advertising. Oh, yeah. I, I know. And who, you know, 
just the, some of the best advertising. You know, the long wait with little boy on the swing, the snowman, the bear and the the hair. You know, all all the bear and the hair, all this kind of stuff. So it was the year of Monster Penguin, and we were laughing at the fact that John Lewis were also selling animatronic penguins for like ninety quid, and we we're like, oh my god, like ninety quid. <laughs> and then we just started saying, would it be funny? If we had a mascot that was like really cheap, like, and we literally said, well, we had a sprout and we, that was our, and we actually had real sprouts and we wrapped them up and they were our mascot. We were laughing about this. And, you know, so the creatives took this idea, Clive and Andy, the two creatives, and they said, well, kids don't really like sprouts because they taste funny. But what about carrots? Because what do you do on Christmas Eve, if certainly in the UK, you leave a carrot for Rudolph. Yep. Yeah, in Australia too. Yeah. Put a carrot for Rudolph. Yeah. A mince pie and a glass of shot. And your dad does it, doesn't he? He <laughs> comes in from the pub, you know. And so, we, again, so originally we thought this idea of what if we had uh, originally, again, a real carrot and wrap them. But then we got this idea of well, what if he, the carrot became our sort of mascot? So it, it sort of crashed into this idea of what if somebody who was, if something was that was ordinary, became extraordinary at Christmas and bang, the idea was born and Kevin was born. And we had this idea of this little carrot who would be our fluent device, our brand mascot, if you like, but also he would be able to walk around it because carrots are small. He could walk around the Christmas table and he could literally show you all the things that Aldi sell at Christmas. He could walk past the Christmas pudding. He could walk past the mince pies. He could walk past the turkey etc etc so we had this thought and i never forget we we presented it to the board aldi and the then ceo said to us so you're you're telling me because bear in mind it's a hugely important trading period they take a quarter of all their sales at christmas and then also because q1 is really important for aldi because what do we all do in q1 we want to save money want to eat more healthy we want to lose weight want to so the penetration you build at Christmas is key to a good Q1. Um, so you're saying, you're telling me we want to, you want to um, do this. And we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Right. So anyway, so bless them. They, they, they went with the idea. And what, what I think was genius was, and uh, is, was that they, they, Dave and Neil and Clive and Andy, the two creators, they worked with Psyop in, in Los Angeles who came up with it. They, they sort of, they they gave Kevin his look. They created the whole world, and we um, uh, we we got Jim Broadbent to do the the VO in this kind of rhyming couplet style. We persuaded Aldi at the last minute to do some toys. We didn't think there'd be a big deal. Anyway, we did it again. Who could? It became a massive hit. There was a riot to get the stores. Everybody loved Kevin, and they had a, a much better Christmas. The trade out was much less, much less. Hmm. The brave thing was that then in year two, Aldi said, we've not completely convinced us to do that again because supermarkets tend to do something different every other year. But why don't you look, come back to us with Kevin scripts and why don't you come back to us with non-Kevin scripts, which is what we'd still do now every year. And we did them, we developed them and Kevin won. And we did year two when Kevin got a wife and he got kids, he got Katie and the kid. And from then it snowballed. So we still do the same thing. So then he was, you know, he had Jeopardy with Pascal the Parsnip. He did a, he had a, a duet with Robbie Williams and the Leafy Brinders. He flew Top Gun 
with with uh, with Turkey. He uh, was uh, was in the Christmas Carrot with Ebanana, and then this year he was home alone. He did a, a Nike football thing, and it's been phenomenal. What's interesting is we set ourselves then the objective of what if we could be more famous than John Lewis? What if we could steal their crowd? And indeed, for two years running, three years running now, we've actually beaten them. In fact, we even beat the Coca-Cola truck. Oh, which is like, you know, classic. people mm. obviously, you know, it's not until I see the Coca-Cola truck that it's Christmas um, on System One. So, you know, held up as the most effective Christmas advertising. And what he's allowed us to do, he he, he has brought to Orlando, in Orlando's 3S, fame, feeling, and fluency. Mm. He's famous. You know who he is. He, he, uh, he creates positive emotion. So he's strong memory structures, positive emotion, and he comes easily to mind. He quickly is attributable quickly to Aldi. And he's also able to, he, he's been, we've been able to use him across all of our touch points. So works really well on social. We even had him doing, you know, cameos this year, you know, where you can do a, you can get a celeb to do it. You would get Kevin. We had dating profiles, all sorts oh, of stuff. That's as brilliant. Well. He's had features in the low magazine. He's had mm. digital out, you know, you can, you know, toys have gone from strength to strength, which is all just incremental revenue, really. So he's a great example of silliness, I would say. The idea of, you know, don't conflate outputs with outcomes. You know, the outcome is we want to sell more stuff at Christmas, we want to not lose share. How we do it might be a bit silly and a bit and the way we do it. Um he um He's, you know, he, he's enabled Aldi to um, expand their range of, of things at Christmas. We even used him during the pandemic in some pandemic advertising, a little cameo appearance, which was great. So being consistent and, of course, the, the power of humor to really build positive emotion and also sort of break rigidity of thinking around stuff. Make people think, you know, consider Aldi for, uh, for Christmas, if you like. I'm glad you said silliness because it's been one of the things as I've just been over the last few days, you know, watching a lot of the old ads. And there is this distinct feel of like, and, and on social, it's, you know, whether it's the Aldadas uh, sliders, obviously Kevin, the free Cuthbert thing. And I wonder like, you know, we obviously deal with a lot of large consumer brands here in Australia. And, you know, I, I think a lot of them would be cautious about going silly. H how do you think about silliness and, and how did they think about silliness and how has that sort of developed over time? I think that's a very good question, Jim. So I, I take it from me, Aldi are not a silly company. They are very serious. <laughs> they are very serious. They are they're, they're lovely to work with. I like to think that we are growth partners uh, and we're very honest with each other, which is why I think we've been able to do the things we've been able to do. They are inherently cautious as a company. So they're very cautious. You know, they don't easily go into things. I think back to the conversation we were having about digital marketing and selling and ADA, it, it raises a question, which is, what is advertising for? I'm a simple soul. I think it's very simple, really. We, we need to be noticed, liked, and remembered. So first of all, we have to be noticed. You know, three, you know the most simple level, advertising, it has to get attention. You have to notice it. It then has to tell you something, and it then has to persuade you to believe it in some ways. We spend all of our time thinking a lot about the bottom bits. Clients love the bottom bit, don't they? What All of our reasons to believe and also messages. Yes. We don't always think a lot about attention. And if we don't get attention, all is for nothing. 
because you don't pay, you're not, not even listening to what you're saying to me. It's my belief that one of the best ways to get noticed is to be noticed and liked. If I like you, I'm much more likely to pay attention to what you're saying or be more open to and receptive to what you're trying to tell me. And I think we've always thought that, you know, but back to your where you started this quote with Mark Ritson, Aldi stores, they're not they're not dislikable, but they're not easy to like. They're pretty <laughs> basic. You can get around them pretty quick. That, but that's probably it, really. So it was a big part of what we did was to try and make you like us. And humor and silliness is a really good way to be liked. I think we've got much more in common with Saturday night TV shows like Strictly Come Dancing or, or you know, the big, you know, the big comedy shows or because they're enter. And the problem is with those sorts of shows is or sitcoms, you know, think of the classic sitcoms like Dad's Army or, you know, something. We like them because they, they feel so familiar to us and, and they're so easy to like. Mm. The problem is that it's incredibly hard to do. It's like writing a pop tune. Right. You know, we've got more in common with five chords, incredibly hard to do. And and because, you know, it's easy to be dismissive of it because it's so hard to get the tone right. And that, I think, has been what we've always aimed for. We've aimed for that kind of mass popularity that comes from a bit of entertaining silliness, if if you like. And what, what I think is important is it's it's shown to be one of my one of my as well as leading on retail, I also read on effectiveness. And so I'm I'm really interested in effectiveness. I'm really interested in, you know, are we spending clients' money in the right way? Are we getting what we need back from it? And being sort of entertainingly silly is actually hugely effective. If you get it right, the payback is enormous. And finding that right tone is tricky, but when you find it, to then it's gold. And if you can nurture it and be consistent around it, what I think is this is where I think good research, you know, talking to people like Kantar, Millwood Brand, System One, because what they'll give you is the logic to to justify the silliness or the magic. You know, the silliness, the magic creates hope for the results. You get you you look at the results, you analyze it, you show logically how it's working, and then you get a virtuous circle. And that's what gives companies, I think, confidence. The more a company really understands or, or has a good go at understanding how their advertising works and knows what they are, the more they're likely to be brave. And I don't like that word, but to do that kind of thing, because, I mean, brave is a funny word, isn't it? You know, we're being brave in our advertising. Well, what? To have it noticed? Well, yeah, that's isn't that kind of what it's for? To me, the biggest crime is doing all that work and all that money and nobody cares. Nobody notices what you've done. So and it's that it's being noticed in a positive way. I mean, we can all do shock tactics. We can all yes. do disruptive things. Sure. And but they're kind of easily forgotten as well. They, they, they spike and then they're forgotten. Look, at the good example, again, of recent times, the Moldy Burger from uh, Burger King probably did quite a lot for them short term. Has it done much longer term? Not sure, really. And yet I can quote you ads that made me laugh, like the Martians for Cadbury Smash from 50 years ago, yep. because they're still in my mind. I still laugh now when I, when I see that ad. I've seen it a gazillion times. So 
I, th- I think it, it's it's and again, it's getting to a point with clients where you can have frank discussions about things like that, but also have some evidence and logical argument to to back it up. I think is is really important. Jamie, I could literally sit here all day um, and chat, but I'm I'm cautious of your time. So I thought maybe we could move into the the quick fire questions to wrap up here, and maybe we'll have to have you on for another episode to to keep going. There's plenty more to discuss. I wanted to ask you, what's your favorite campaign of all time you know in any brand any era gosh that is a good question personal favorite well i i am a big fan of i'm a big fan of heineken so i know orlando talks about it and he quite often shows recently the uh the famous uh william words i love the lake district by the way so i'm i live not far from the lake district so i was there a couple of weekends ago in Oldswater actually looking at the daffodils but I just think I love that it's the so beautifully made, so funny. The two, the two that always stick in my mind. That one with the with Wordsworth, and then the the skit on uh, My Fair Lady on Pygmalion with the water Mallorca don't taste like what it ought to. It's just so funny. What what I like about it, James, is all lager is refreshing. It's you know it's not telling you anything. That's a generic benefit of lager. It's refreshing. Well, yeah. But, you know, the way they took that ad and took the exaggerated it in such a way, it's just so funny and clever. Um, I think that's great work. I think um, Cadbury have done some great work. Um, I mean, I can think all the way back to, you know, Cadbury's cream eggs, how do you eat yours? Mr. Cadbury's parrot for uh, mini eggs. The recent work they did on there's a glass and a half, and everyone, of course, very award winning. I think that is uh, that is uh, superb. Also, all that you know, I'm a great believer that you know, if you can sing it, still you still you still remember it. So for mash get smash or uh, it's all Cadbury stuff, isn't it? Finger of fudge, all those kind of things. That's the kind of those are the kind of ads that that. Um, that, that appeal to me, really. I always think advertising is a great, you know, does it lead, does it reflect? It's a great, if you look back through ha- the history of advertising, it's a great mirror, maybe, on society and culture, isn't it? Because quite often it was reflecting the sort of, the, the cultural uh, the cultural um, norms of the time, if you like. And I think funnily enough, I, the water in Mallorca, I think there's a parallel to like brands there as well. There's sort of, whether it's that sort of that regional playing on the regional accents and, and all that, that's brilliant. Maybe putting aside some of the, you know, the mega brands, I'd love to get your take on sort of up and coming brands that are doing, you know, who's doing branding really, really well that isn't maybe leaning on an established, you know, decades of brand, Just someone new up and coming that you think is doing it particularly well. Yeah, I mean, well, not not so up and coming. Uh, they're probably probably up and come, but I think Specsavers mm. with the work they did with, you know, should have gone to Specsavers. Brilliant. A totally generic claim. You know, you need glasses. It's <laughs> a kind of, you know, um, I, I love that. There's an old adage, isn't there? You know, you know, advertising strategy on one page. Have you got something to say? Say it. Have you not got something to say? Well, make something up. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah, it's kind of that's it really. <laughs> you know, you get, job done. And they 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 took a totally generic thing and they they sort of they flipped it uh into they flipped it into something they could own i was reading do you i don't know you read any of the work of bob hoffman you know that contrarian really worth reading his blogs but he says you know the great the, the greatest positioning for your brand is a good creative idea have a good creative idea uh you know we, we we torture ourselves around brand meaning and things 
But, you know, somehow having a great creative idea is a far more interesting thing. It's interesting. A lot, I think, you know, a lot of the very upcoming tech brands, ads tend to be a bit generic. I think they're not always great. I mean, I was, in fact, I was talking to me. I'm, I'm not going to get into Apple, but we were talking about, you know, the great days of Apple advertising, Apple iPhone. They were product demo ads, really, because it was the the functionality of the of the of the the functionality of the product was such that that in itself, you know, from great functions can can something uh, can something uh, new come right. But um, I think there's been some quite uh, some quite fun stuff in some of the things like you know the sort of you know the the some of the the aggregators like again the Meerkat. Uh, I mean that's not new really, but I mean that's been around for for, for uh, probably ten years or more. But the idea of just getting the word Meerkat into your mind so that for the compare the market, so it, it drives you to the, the the website. I think is is it's very very is interesting. Mm, that is interesting. You know, we've talked a little bit about today about, you know, some of the, the negative trends in advertising, but what do you think is the most overrated trend in marketing and advertising right now? I'll give you, t- I'll give you two. Purpose, for sure. I don't know whether you've read or any of your listeners read, read the book, Steve Harrison's book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell, uh, worth a read, whether you agree with him or disagree with him. He, he, it's, you know, how advertising trops trying to sell things and starts to try and save the world. Builds very much on the on the work of Andrew Tenzer, uh, which is really predicated on the idea that fundamentally people who work in marketing and and normal people have very different v- uh, values. People who work in advertising tend to be motivated by success, by power, by status, by money. Most people mm. don't. Most people, it's more about community, family, belonging, and so you 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 have a disparity straight away. And then this idea that brands should can bolt on things to, to their brand that are at best sort of like slightly slightly spurious and at worst completely nothing to do with them. Right. That's not to say, as I've said, if it is true to what you are, then that's a different thing. That's a brand truth. Yeah. I saw some great work that Lifeboy Soap did in uh, India. Well, so Lifebuoy antibacterial soap was just about body odor, wasn't it? You wash yourself in Lifebuoy soap. It's a way of staying fresh. They did a whole campaign about washing your hands. And it's a, you know, it's number of children that die from diarrhea and from, you know, hand to mouth and dehydration. That's hugely relevant because that's a truth of what their brand is. And I, and I get that at all. That's not trying to bolt something onto a brand that isn't true. That's very different from having a, you know, a, a motel brand that's saving the grillers or something. Uh, you know, it's just kind of crazy. Uh, there's something about there's something about authenticity there, isn't there? With, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think your example of how Aldi lives that purpose with, you know, like you say, it's often that slightly lower socioeconomic demographic. I think that's brilliant. There's a brand I just want to tell you about. There's an Australian brand called Who Gives a Crap, which make toilet paper. I can't remember the specifics. I'm hoping to have Simon, the CEO, and I think they put, you know, 10% of um, profits uh, go to building toilets in in um, in developing countries. In a way, it links a few things of what you said. It's clearly a, a, a brilliant purpose. It's also a creative idea, right? Like it's a sort of, you know, there's something very, um, and obviously the name is just absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, yeah. My other overrated one is the good old metaverse. <laughs> so, bye. Oh. If I need to have, you know what? I've had enough conversations about the metaverse to last me a lifetime. 
we won't get into. We probably won't get it. Let's not get into the metaverse. But I, I, I think um, there's a lot of the, the, the Mark Ritson. I'm a big fan of Mark. Mm. Also, I mean, who, who wouldn't be for all of his, you know, colourful language, yeah. which is his brand. He's great, though. Yeah, he's great. He is. And um, you know, he says one of the problems we have is we we we're, we're so obsessed with the new in advertising, the new and the novel is so important that you always feel like you've got something new to say. And he says, I often feel like I can't come on and say, well, what you should be really doing is all the things that, that, that people have been doing for the last hundred years, because it's not, who wants to hear that? And that's the problem in the search for the new we've over prioritized sometimes the novel and the, the, uh, the, 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 mm. the sort of shiny and the, the disruptive without thinking about things that most people don't want to be disrupted right. in that way. You know, it's, evolution uh, of things or, you know, it's one of the things Orlando talked about, is, you know, keep things 80% fresh, give it a fresh, things we know with a fresh twist. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, Aldi coins or Aldi NFTs have come up in the last few years. I know you won't say, but I'm I'm, I'm sure you've sat in those uh, <laughs> in those meetings. Now, that, that, that's fascinating. I think, um, you know, an AI is clearly the... Yes, my, my husband, John, is uh, he used to be an IT teacher actually, and now does he does work in IT education? He says to me all the time, "No such thing as AI." So there's no such thing as AI. There's machine learning, you know. And he says, you know, the Turing test, nothing would pass the Turing test. Nothing you couldn't sit and have a conversation with any system and be fueled, fueled to think it was a human being. What we're getting is increasingly better machine learning, where things are learning. You know, Chat GPT, they're learning to do things. That we did, you know, but it's not, it isn't truly AI. Mm. And, and I guess, you know, I guess, you know, speaking to a lot of brands every every day and every week, I mean, and and, and look, even if it is, you know, it, it, there's something to be said for, you know, the fundamentals and, you know, if, if brands maybe put more effort yeah. into all the things we've talked about today, I think, you know, that, you know, they'd probably be in a, in a, a better place. Yeah, I want I want to just say at the end. So I thought of another one. If you followed, uh, is it Sam Adams beer? Your, your your cousin from Boston. I love those ads. They're fantastic, fantastic. Mm. Great stories. They're funny. He's a great character. The one they did with the robot, the dancing robots. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, I could watch that ad time and time again. Uh, the, some of the recent McDonald's work. The McDonald's. The the oh. the fancy McDonald's. Brilliant. Yeah, that was really, really clever. It reminds me, I um, recorded an episode with a um, with a lady called Melissa Rosenthal. She was um, the chief creative officer at BuzzFeed for many years, and she sort of built you know that whole branded content business. She's now at a, a funnily enough, she's at a software company now called ClickUp, and she said something which is you know if she's sort of can you can you really it goes back to what you were talking about with just making people laugh. And so they've you know they've made all of these funny skits, which is you know it's very unusual for the B two B. Yeah. Um, uh, world, which is brilliant. So let's take the flip side. So, you know, what's the trend that no one is talking about that we probably should be talking about? What's the sort of the hidden, is there a hidden gem? Well, I think, I think, uh, I think entertainment is interesting. I think we're seeing a blurring. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of old trend come back, isn't it? I mean, Mm. you know, where did these things start with soap operas and, and, uh, you know, but I think the blurring of advertising into entertainment is interesting. Mm. I think content, what we've all realized is guess what? If you make, you know, content, such a terrible word. I know. know, know, It sounds like filler, doesn't it? It's like, you know, we'll just shove something in there. It's like what you stuffed it, what are you going to stuff the mattress with content? It's awful. But if you think, you know, what we've realized is guess what? If you create stuff 
that people like, they're more likely to pay attention to it. So I've sat in endless presentations recently where people have talked about TikTok being like, you know, a mm. lean in medium. Well, no kidding, because guess what? It's quite entertaining. Yeah. So if you're bored on the train or sat at an airport, as I often am, and you sort of think, oh, I'll have a bit of a scroll through TikTok, before you know where you are, you're sucked into <laughs> because it's an entertainment channel, really, unlike ads that are, you know, maybe pre-rolls or whatever on YouTube, which are annoying and are are interrupting you all the time. So I think that crossover into entertainment, I think, is is an interesting one. Yeah, and I see it goes right back to you know the idea of a where advertising came from, and the the idea that you know if you're gonna if you're gonna interrupt people's lives, at least you can do is reward them with a laugh or something, or tell them something useful. So I think that is an that is a very interesting space. Yeah, and I think we'll see more going on there as as time goes on, and we've rediscovered things haven't we I mean, so we're rediscovering that mm. we're rediscovering you know integration as it as it's called now but the idea was that if you exp- you know that 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 marketing is more than advertising and all of those different things if you can if you can make them much more holistic to an idea and work together it's it, you know it, disney of course are the Geniuses mm. at all of this, and isn't it interesting what they're how they're blurring the lines of entertainment? Right. And, um, I think humour mm. is the other one. I think humour is on the way back. It's had a terrible time. What, why is that? That's that's interesting to me. Why is that? What, why is it coming back? No. Or why I, I think, why did it ever go away? I mean, well, I think it was. I think it was two things. I think first of all, I think the rise of digital advertising and this right this rise of selling. Right. You know, kind of, kind of was a negative effect. It's a famous quote, isn't it, by David Ogilvy? And I'm, I'm going to misquote it, but it's like nobody ever bought from a clown or something it was like that. Right. Ogilvy liked all his long copy, so I think there was a very much. I mean, which is all oh, that's totally not because if you look at some loads of his great ads, they're very funny. Mm. So you know, advertisers said a lot of things that they didn't necessarily do in in reality. You know, they liked to make out that everything they did was very scientific <laughs> and logical, when actually a lot of it was very silly. You know, the famous one with Ogilvy, of course, is the, the Hathaway shirt man. You know, the guy with the eye patch on, do you know the story of that? He was going to the shoot for the shirts and he walked past a joke shop and there was a, <laughs> it was, it was Halloween or something. And there was a eye patch in the window and he bought it. And when he got there, he said, oh, put it on. It just made him look more interesting. Looked a bit rafish, didn't he? A bit rakish and a bit sort of, you know. Ooh. That's he fascinating. He looks a bit like Errol <laughs> Flynn, you know. Right. So made it more interesting so i think there was that's why so i think the more we moved into serious selling mm. the more the humor and i think also the rise of if it doesn't sound like a contradiction the rise of the weakening role of the cmo happened i think as cmos became as as finance became more important mm. and you know you had to justify things in those boardrooms very left brain or mm. then humor didn't seem so relevant all no. of a sudden i think what's happening is now is there's a lot of evidence that's made people realize and so hopefully and i think also the times we we live in uh which are challenging for all sorts of reasons mm. we more need a bit of a laugh you yep. know like yep. having a bit of putting a smile on somebody's face even just for a few moments mm. is a is a good thing to do and I think, you know, brands that get that balance right mm. are brands that will, will do very well. And it, but, you know, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to get the humor right. It's a, it's a real thing. So I think that's, mm. that's something that's on the way back as well. 
That's a great insight. And um, I'm sure you followed these Oatly spam, uh, you know, that Oatly spam campaign that yeah. was big a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it was funny. I was, you know, talking to a friend about those billboards and he he works in advertising and he said, you know, like really like, the, you know, if you can, he said exactly what you said, if you can make someone smile, you know, that's half the battle. And I think, I mean, their copywriting, I mean, whatever you think about the product or whatever, yeah. but their copywriting is just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely. You know the one. The one that I loved was I don't know if you saw it. I think it was in in Manhattan. It was a, a billboard, and it, it, the copy was something like you know what would be sillier than buying a billboard in Times Square to promote a newsletter? And there's a second billboard, you know, yeah. buying a second one. It's just bloody it's brilliant. Just funny. I mean, just, and you walk past that, and it just makes you laugh on you, as on you, as you trudge to work in the morning or whatever. It's great, and um, we we you know hopefully we're rediscovering these things have all come maybe come round free you know full circle, but we're rediscovering power of that and and and, and the, i say the third one so i'm not keep going is, is i think hopefully a rediscovery of craft as well mm. a, a rediscovery of the importance of craft in advertising great writing great art direction putting in i mean they, they, they've coined the term now so the easter egg is the term isn't it you know putting things in ads for people to discover mm. and like i mean i always think you know the masters of that are people like pixar you know when you watch their mm. movies they operate at so many levels you can watch them with the kids or whatever and then you you're laughing at that little or so i've never actually noticed that thing on the wall behind there you know there's a great adage if you treat your audience with respect they will respect you mm. give them space and allow them to come to the thing as well don't try and sell all the time which is of course the great temptation and i think you know it's often the great temptation when times are hard and budgets are uh, a strap because we we have this term don't we hard working it's got to be hard working well actually what do you mean by hard working what an outcome don't we mm, yeah that's brilliant um last question jamie who, who should i have on the show next well orlando if you could get hold of orlando he would be he would be a great person to have on I'm a, a big admirer of Paul Feldwick. So if you know Paul, who wrote, you know, um, The Anatomy of Humbug, I should say, and Why Does the Peddler Sing? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, Rory, Rory is very good as well. Obviously, Mark Ritson would be great. John Evans from System One is very, very good as well. Very, very good as well. Brilliant. Jamie, th thank you so much for taking the time today. This was such a fascinating chat. I mean, even just the Aldi war stories are just brilliant. Like I said, I could I could talk all day. So I think, you know, we've got plenty more to talk about. So we'll have to do it again sometime soon. It's been a pleasure. I've, re I've really enjoyed it, James. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for listening to the On The Moment podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And to suggest a guest or provide feedback, please visit our dedicated podcast hub at ownthemomentpod.com.